This episode of On the Beat is brought to you by Ingles. Shop online with Ingles curbside pickup. New curbside stores opening every week. Please welcome Mike Griffith. Well, hey, everybody. Mike Griffith here, and welcome to tonight's Ingles On the Beat. And uh, a really fun show for you. Obviously, uh, the, it's a good world for Georgia football right now. The, the win Saturday uh, was spectacular. It was one of the uh, most impressive spectacles that I've ever seen. Uh, in my 30 years of covering college football, Sanford Stadium was it was on fire. I mean, it was just on fire. The decibel count, the way the crowd influenced the game, the way they responded, the way Georgia responded to a Tennessee team that had been essentially unstoppable since the opening game. It, it, you know, and I understood where the Tennessee people were coming from. They'd see team after team after team try to stop the Vols, and they couldn't do it. Hendon Hooker was playing incredible. So what did Georgia do? Georgia disrupted Tennessee at the line of scrimmage. Jalen Carter, number 88, the MVP of that game, hands down. Uh, you look at what Jalen did with two forced fumbles. Uh, he had two tackles for loss. And say, well, that's only four. Listen, he impacted almost every play he was in there. 48 snaps. That is an extremely high snap count for a defensive tackle. I mean, Jalen Carter left his heart on the field, and he did a remarkable job. The secondary was also outstanding. You didn't see any busts, no coverage mistakes. Kirby told us after the game, hey, look, they kept it simple. You want to play fast, you got to keep it simple. And it was an incredible scheme. You saw Javon Bullard blitz a couple of times, a couple quarterback sacks. You'd see the inside linebackers. This was something that Jeremy Pruitt told us about on the show. They'd move up like they were going to blitz, and then they'd drop back. Or sometimes, like early on, they actually did do the double-A gap blitz to let Tennessee know, hey, at any time, we can send two up the middle. Uh, you saw Bullard, the star, coming off the edge. Kirby came at Hooker from a lot of different angles. And even when he didn't blitz, those down linemen, Carter, Nazir Stackhouse, Beal early on, uh, Tramel Walthour, these guys, Michael Williams, were moving the line back into Hendon Hooker. And this is a guy who's used to having some space. As you heard Jeremy say, not really a guy that takes a deep drop. But when the line's getting pushed into you, that's a problem. And there were times you'd see Hendon, you'd see the, you know, the, the hand with the balls, you know, he tried to elbow away or or move away from the the pressure that was coming in, and then he'd rear back and throw it, and the timing would just be off. There was no rhythm because of the down linemen that Georgia has. And Tim Tebow told us on Friday, if you saw on the Dog Nation Facebook page or the YouTube channel, when Tim Tebow said, this is a hallmark of Kirby Smart defenses. And Tebow faced it at Florida when Kirby and, uh, and Pruitt were at Alabama, that they were going to have that push up front. That's probably why Tim Tebow picked Georgia to win the game. Right. It's, and David Pollock as well, uh, because they knew what the Georgia defense could do. But the Tennessee folks couldn't see it because nobody else had done it. The timing had been impeccable. The momentum was great. Tennessee was number one for the first time since 1998. Uh, there was a lot of momentum and Georgia took it all away. The players took it away. The stadium atmosphere. It was overwhelming for Tennessee. Josh Heupel said you have to learn from this. You have to understand the energy level and the emotion you're going to get, not just from the team, but from the other team's fans. It was a lesson for Tennessee of what it's going to be like at number one. And it reminds me of Georgia in 2017. That Georgia team was so dominant. I still remember telling Brandon Adams after they shut out Tennessee, I said, this is the best team in the country. This team's going to win the national title. Should have won the national title, by the way. Sorry, Coach Brewett. Should have won the national title. Uh, but Tennessee lost to Auburn, right? They've gotten named number one in the first playoff rank, and they got loose, right? Very similar. It takes time to understand how to handle being the number one ranked team, right? It takes time to understand how to handle that, how to play with the necessary intensity, and, and how to handle the stakes and the emotions and the physicality that's going to be in that sort of football game. Tennessee has not been there. There was no way for them to replicate that or anticipate that. And Josh Heupel knows that. Josh Heupel won a national championship as a quarterback, and he was a Heisman Trophy. Heupel gets it, okay? But you can't translate some things. It's like sometimes you try to tell your kids things. They can't learn it until they go through it themselves. And it's sort of like that with football. Will Tennessee get a second chance? We're going to talk about that in the second half of the show with Jeremy Pruitt. We're going to go through the playoff scenarios 
and uh, potential teams that Tennessee could be measured against. And, uh, and Coach Pruitt with some very interesting picks this week that I think will surprise you. You know, looking at these stats uh, from the game Saturday, because it, it was it – was, if you're a Georgia fan, uh, it was a glorious game. It was – now, I know the Rose Bowl was in California and the playoffs were new and it put you – but as far as regular season games go at Sanford Stadium, in the five years I've covered the program, remember I wasn't here in 1670 under Kirby, but 18, 19, 20, 21, this was by far and away the best regular season game. This outdid Notre Dame 2019 under the lights. That was spectacular in its own way. But this game on Dooley Field, you know, the legend passes away last week. You could just feel the emotion of Coach Dooley when the rain came. You know, there was a part of me that just – you know, envision Vince Dooley uh, up in heaven, just pouring buckets of water on the game, you know, and not giving Tennessee any year. And I know that's, it's, it's probably a little out there, but you just, you could feel the emotion, right. And, and a game played event on Vince Dooley field, uh, you know, less than, you know, just over a week after he passed, I just, I felt there was a little something in the air. Uh, the, the crowd was electric, the dogs played hard, but it just felt like there was something special going on there uh you take a look Stetson Bennett played really well this passing line of 17 to 25 for 257 with two touchdowns I know that you know he's had 300 yard games and and he's had bigger wins in terms of the national title game and the Orange Bowl uh, MVP performance was one of his best I think this was his best overall performance because of the circumstance now Kirby shut the offense didn't shut it down but he slowed it down in the second half there were 25 offensive plays run by georgia in the second half 20 of them 21 of them were run plays so stetson was two of three throwing in the third quarter he only attempted one pass in the fourth quarter kirby was taking the air out of the ball he was being smart and conservative because it was raining out and kirby didn't want there to be any big plays you know what kirby said you know hey when there's back-to-back fumbles like there was in the third quarter that tells you something about the conditions and that's when he decided you know what Let's not give Tennessee any potential for life, a turnover, a pick six. Uh, keep it simple because the defense was in charge. The crowd was influencing the game. There were six false starts. There were six quarterback snaps. There was an illegal procedure. Josh Heupel said it. The communication issues were not handled well. Um, big factor in the football game. But then at 17 to 25, 25, 257, two touchdowns, the 13-yard scramble, and then, and then the sign, like he was calling somebody on the phone. If you didn't hear the story, apparently his phone number got leaked out Friday, and there were a lot of Tennessee fans calling it and leaving messages, and it just really annoying Stetson before he figured out uh, how to shut it off so his fan his phone wouldn't be blown up uh, and disturbed all the time. I asked him after the game. I said, "Was that a motivator?" And he said, "It wasn't a motivator, but it was something," uh, which was Stetson's way of saying that he was pretty upset about it. And, and motivated, obviously, because he, you know, he did the phone sign after he scored, almost like saying to the pranksters, hey, that one's for you. Uh, Kenny McIntosh, man, he ran hard. Ten carries, 52 yards, had a 15-yard run. Uh, touch, and he also had uh, – and Kenny also had uh, two catches for 57 yards, including an explosive 49-yard play. It was the second longest play of the game. You saw Arian Smith lay out there, 52-yard catch. It was the only catch of the day. Served its purpose, though. Sent the message early on that, yes, Georgia can strike deep. Makes those safeties have to think about it. So there were a lot of heroes. I thought Ladd McConkey was, was exceptional. Five catches on five targets, 94 yards and a touchdown. Ladd with that beautiful 37-yard touchdown catch on the out-and-up move. Really just left the, descent, the Tennessee defender in his tracks. Ladd McConkey, folks, is going to be an NFL player. I'm telling you, you just look at Ladd. He's got those long legs. He gets bigger, and every time I see him, I feel like he's grown another inch. Lad McConkey is an incredibly hardworking guy. He's an incredibly dedicated guy. He's extremely intelligent. Um, I, I think he's just – I think he's phenomenal, and I think he's going to find a way to make it to the league. Don't know what he's going to do once he's there, but I think you're going to see Lad McConkey in the NFL uniform someday. Can't wait to see what he runs when the time comes for him to do combine. Don't think he's going anywhere after this season. I think you're going to get all four years, but this is going to be a permanent captain guy, I think, next year, a guy to circle on your list. Brock Bowers targeted five times, only three catches for 27 yards. Give Tennessee credit. They accounted for him. You know, they said, you know what? We're not going to let George's best guy beat us. So they took out Brock Bowers. Uh, Darnell Washington, two targets, no catches. So Tennessee did a really good job 
of taking away Georgia's tight ends, who we all thought would be integral to the game plan. But as we know, Todd Munkin says, oh, okay, is that what you're doing? Is that what you're doing? You're going to give, you're going to put extra personnel on Brock and Darnell. Okay. Okay. Well, then we're going to beat you with Ladd McConkey or we're going to beat you with Kenny McIntosh because that's how Georgia rolls. Stetson can go to the line of scrimmage and he can call the plays at the line of scrimmage. He can direct the traffic and he can, he can adjust the protection. He can adjust the routes. Everything that Georgia does, Stetson Bennett has the capability of controlling it from the line of scrimmage. Also, they'll go to the line of scrimmage with two or three play calls, uh, maybe a run and a pass, and they get to the line of scrimmage. They read the defense, you know, uh, you know, yell out, you know, red, red, red. Okay, well, now we know that it's it's going to be the, the run play, right? Or, you know, yellow, yellow, yellow. Okay, well, now yellow means it's the pass play. Whatever the codes are, it's very hard as a defense because you could be in the right alignment and end up wrong because of Stetson's ability to check out of the play. And they play fast. You saw early on Georgia going with tempo. I thought, wow, this is a changeup, right? You know, this this thought that, oh, Kirby's just going to go out there, shrink the game, slur everything. No, Georgia goes out there. They're playing fastball, man. They're playing tempo early on, and Tennessee's got to be going, wait a minute. what? This is what our offense does. So I thought that was an interesting strategy. It was working. I didn't like that they took Kenny McIntosh out. I thought he was the hot hand. You put Dejan in cold. He fumbles. Uh, gave Tennessee a quick 3-0 lead. Uh, and then in the second half, you bring Branson Robinson in the freshman. He fumbles thinking, you know, I know Del McGee likes to play everybody, but in a game of this magnitude, I'm going with the senior, especially Kenny, a guy from South Florida, you know, has played in the rain. Only 10 carries for Kenny. Although Kirby said today earlier, got a little banged up. There was no update on Robert Beal this morning other than to say that he had a stinger. And, and Kirby made it sound like he could come back, a shoulder stinger, by the way, um, you know, where it, that would indicate that there wasn't any break or subluxation. You know, maybe just a pinched nerve is typically what a stinger is, but Kirby didn't go into great detail. Uh, Kirby also didn't go into any detail on A.D. Mitchell, Xavier Truss, or Marius Mims. He said the update is we're going to try to get him back, and he left it at that, left it at that. Kendall Milton did come back, uh, big to get Kendall back. Kendall is a power back. Kendall has so much upside. He had three carries for eight yards. Keep an eye on Kendall Milton. Kendall is another one of these guys that can make a big difference down the stretch run. I know he's been battling that strained groin. I'm not sure if he was 100% or not, but it was good to see him back on the field because he is a playmaker and he is a difference maker. And uh, so that way, and it gives Georgia that fourth man in the backfield a little bit more depth. I think they've been substituting around. The lack of depth, I think that's why you've seen them use Kenny and manage his snaps because they know they've got to keep Kenny healthy for the championship run. Uh, but just all in all, just a, a great win for Georgia football, a great win for the program, top to bottom. You saw Thorson with a 75-yard punt. You saw uh, Jack Podlesny with a couple field goals. I mean, there was really not much not to like about that game if you're a Georgia fan, especially the Kirby Smart and his staff prepared and the way the players executed, the way they believed, right? He talked about that, the level of buy-in. It wasn't about me or my stats. It was about what does the team need? And when you can get that level of buy-in in this day and age, that's impressive. That's a separator. That's what's keeping Georgia on top is that these players are accountable to one another and they're accountable to their team. There's no selfishness in there. Like I said, I, I go back to Jalen Carter. I mean, think about this. You know, here's a guy who's on the brink of, of tens of millions of dollars as an NFL player, and he goes out and plays 48 snaps. I mean, that is a ridiculous number. But his team needed him. They had to have him. He was the difference. I don't think you're going to see 48 snaps from Jalen again. I really don't, unless they play Tennessee again. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. Right now, though, I want to take a short break. And I want to recognize our sponsor, Ingles. I want to thank Ingles for their support this season. It's been an incredible run for the Georgia Bulldogs. It's been an incredible run for Ingles. They were there serving you during the pandemic, frontline workers. We had to count on Ingles. They were there. That meant everything to all of us. And now we see Ingles continuing to sponsor the On the Beat team. We see Georgia continuing at the top of the polls. These great things just keep going and going and going. So, Ingles, thank you very much. Let's take this moment to recognize you. And when we come back, Jeremy Pruitt. 
Did you know that Ingalls sells more organics than any other store? Or that they run their own dairy? Or that they only serve USDA choice and prime meat? Did you know that they have more local craft beer than any place else? Or that they have energy smart stores? Or that they professionally slice and package imported cheese from Europe? Did you know about their giant international aisle, local farm partnerships, curbside pickup, wine department? Or that they donate 3,956 meals a day to local food banks? Well, now you do. It's all in the bag. Ingles, low prices, love the savings. Welcome back to the program. And as promised, we'll have Jeremy Pruitt in just a moment. But for now, I want to show you an appearance I made on the SEC Network. A lot of times when you put your opinions out there, it can really come back and bite you. This time it didn't. I tried to tell him. Here's what I said to Paul Feinbaum last Friday on the campus. He has not played in that spotlight that's waiting for him tomorrow. And, and maybe Heupel's got it right. He seems pretty calm and cool and, you know, looking at what color media members are wearing at his press conference, cutting up, having a good time, and maybe that's the way to do it. He's a national championship coach. But I'm going to tell you, he's facing a former All-CC safety named Kirby Smart, and the Lions going to come out of the cage tomorrow at Sanford Stadium. Big win for the dog. You could tell I was pretty fired up, and Paul Feinbaum wasn't necessarily a believer. Now, as promised, Jeremy Pruitt joins us. Coach, thanks for joining us this week. Well, welcome back to the program, and as always, excited to have Jeremy Pruitt join us. And, Coach, I, I feel like uh, we watched the game that you kind of saw coming a little bit. Uh, a lot of the things that you thought would happen did happen. Of course, Georgia winning that game 27-13. to 13. The score really not indicative, I didn't think, of the dominance. I guess I would ask you just right off the top some of your takeaways from the Georgia-Tennessee historic clash of number one teams at Sanford Stadium. Well, I think starting with everybody's talking about Georgia's defense, which was awesome, right? Uh, had a great game plan, executed it, uh, challenged Tennessee's wide receivers, got pressure up the middle. But to me, I go back to Georgia's offense. Uh, as efficient as they were to start the game, um, they put put a lot of pressure on Tennessee. Tennessee has been able to get off to fast starts this year. Uh, Georgia got some stops. Um, Georgia put points on the board early, created some explosive plays that we had talked about last week that we felt like that uh, Stetson Bennett was going to have to throw the ball down the field. And again, he he hurts Tennessee with his feet. So, um, you know, you, you said it. It was a game that probably was not as close as a score indicated. Um, and I which a lot of Tennessee fans probably wouldn't like me and you saying that. But I kind of go back to Tennessee playing Florida. That score was a one-score game. That score was not near as close as the final score. Tennessee dominated that game. And I think that was kind of the same way in, in this game. But you look at Tennessee, hey, they they're, I, I feel like they control their own destiny. They went out. Uh, I see a one-loss Tennessee team making the playoffs. So they can't let this game affect the next game. So, And I don't think they will. You look at Josh Heupel's comments after the game, um, you know, uh, was very constructive, talking about the things that they needed to worry about that they could control. Um, you see some of the comments today coming out of Knoxville. So I, I believe they're headed in the right direction here. It's a noon kickoff in Knoxville, which is not near like a night game there. So uh, they've got to get off the mat and play a, a dangerous Missouri team, a uh, Missouri team that can, can play pretty good defense and, uh, you know, you, you never know in this league. So so Tennessee's got to be ready to play next week. Yeah, and we're going to talk about the playoff scenario later in this segment because there are a lot of things that can happen in some scenarios. And I think Coach Pruitt's going to shock you with a pick or two today. This ought to be pretty fun. We talked a little bit before the show, and I said, oh, my gosh, this is going to get real interesting fast. About Georgia, you know, you see an emergence, a reemergence, I should say, of Jalen Carter. I mean, here's a guy – that had only played eight snaps in the second half of games, uh, gets about 20 snaps against Florida, you know, makes a, a couple of plays, disrupts Anthony Richardson. Jeremy, this big guy played 48 snaps. And I'll let you put that into perspective. How often did defensive tackles play 48 snaps, number one? And number two, let's talk about the impact of a Jalen Carter. Do they win that game without a Jalen Carter? You know, I think it uh, to me. You you talk about the the strength and conditioning staff, the training staff. Jalen Carter's obviously been injured. Uh, Forty eight snaps would be the limit for a defensive tackle. 
Uh, but it's something that you would build yourself up to. You know, he's been out for a while. So that, that kind of shows you the plan and the conditioning that uh, the strength and conditioning and, and uh, athletic training staff did there at Georgia. Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, you look at Georgia, they were down Nolan Smith. Robert Bill gets hurt early in the game. Uh, so, you know, they, they relied on a lot of pressures up the middle. I thought Georgia set the tempo on the first play of the game defensively. They brought the two inside linebackers. They didn't get to Hendon Hooker, but they got close. Um, and, and they let him know that, hey, uh, not only will our edge guys come with our star and our jacks, but also these two inside linebackers. And they also brought safeties in the game. Uh, so, you know, I feel like that uh, Glenn Schumann, Will Muschap, uh, Kirby, um, you know, had an aggressive game plan. Um, and if you call a game aggressive, your kids kind of take on that identity. And I feel like that's what happened on Saturday. Yeah, there's no doubt about it that the line came out of the cage for Georgia. I mean, this is a game where Georgia had something to prove, kind of felt like the intangibles favored the Bulldogs. A couple things happened during the course of the week. I think the most important thing in terms of an intangible or a motivator, and I know that Kirby will tell you these guys don't, you know, take a look at the media, but they had to see that they were dropped to number three in the polls by the college football playoff committee. I mean, it's one thing when your head coach is saying you're not there yet, you got work to do. But then when you see an outside source like that say, hey, you're really not there yet. We think you're number three. I think that was one thing. And then there were some comments, uh, really good former Tennessee quarterback Eric Ainge, who beat Georgia at Georgia at a time when before Sanford Stadium and Vince Dooley Field really kicked into what it was. And, and I asked you question, this question the other day, Coach, you know, noise factor, right? And, and you hear some people, oh, I can't believe the noise would make that big of a difference. But six false starts and six quarterback sacks, I ask you, what was the value of that crowd for Georgia on Saturday? Well, Mike, I, to me, it tells a little bit about where Georgia is as a program. Kirby Smart challenged the fans. And instead of hi-hatting him and, you know, they, they responded like his players are. They responded. The noise, obviously, I wasn't there. You were. But you could tell it, it gave Tennessee issues, and it would give anybody issues uh, playing on the road there. So I feel like the, the fan base uh, – was probably worth about seven to ten points on Saturday in that game, uh, just with the the false starts and things that put uh, Tennessee behind the chains, and it also slowed down the tempo. You know, we talked about it earlier: incomplete passes, penalties, uh, guys going out of bounds, things that slow down the fast tempo of Tennessee's offense. Uh, you know, that that all created an advantage for Georgia. Huge advantage. One more thing on this this game before we move on. You know, I, I've heard everybody talk about hurry up offense, hurry up offense, hurry up offense. I haven't heard anybody talk about hurry up defense, right? Kirby Smart solved the hurry up offense. There were there was no issues with Georgia having guys running off the field, getting flagged for twelve men, looking like they were confused, different packages, broken assignments. I mean, my goodness, Tennessee didn't even get a play over seventeen yards long until there was four and a half minutes left in the game, Coach. So you're familiar with some of the principles uh, of Kirby's hurry-up defense. What is it that Georgia does so well that other programs haven't that enabled them to be able to sub and slow down or, or play fast with Tennessee when they needed to? Well, I would say first thing when you got goals to start the week, probably the number one goal for Georgia was beat Tennessee back to the ball. When the play's over with, beat them back to the ball. You beat them back to the ball, you get your eyes to the sideline, you get your call, uh, and then you echo it across the board. So that was one thing. Um, I thought it was um, really impressive with a, with the with the youth. Uh, I mean, because Georgia's still got youth now in the signal caller positions, uh, guys that don't have a lot of experience. I know it's the eighth game of the year, uh, but they've not seen the tempo that Tennessee plays with. I thought the poise uh, that that – Georgia's defense uh, showed throughout the game. Tennessee made plays. They made some plays, and they were close on a few other plays, right? Uh, but they kept their poise. They kept playing. Um, um, Johnson gets hurt for Georgia. To me, he looks like he's the signal caller on defense. Next guy up, uh, didn't have any issues. So I think it's a credit to everybody in the in the Georgia program that's attached to the University of Georgia uh, you know, they, they really put on a show on Saturday. And you look on the other part with Tennessee, uh, there's no shame in losing at Georgia. Georgia's the defending champions. 
Uh, they've had a great run so far this season. Uh, they got to continue to learn, learn from this, build on it. And if they do that, they'll get another chance at Georgia possibly down the road. Yeah, Jamon Dumas-Johnson, an outstanding job at middle linebacker. I think he was able to finish up Robert Beal going out, Ch- Chaz Chambliss coming in. Uh, today, Kirby Smart updated that. We talked about that the first half of the show. It was a stinger, Kirby says. But there, there is uh, that raises a flag of depth, right? Because Nolan Smith goes out, Beal's next man up. He went out. Now you're down to Chaz Chambliss. You're down to number three. Big drop-off there between a six-year senior and a sophomore at that position. Going to be very important to keep up with the status of Robert Beal at that position. And you better believe that Kirby Smart and Will Muschamp and Glenn Schumann are looking very closely at that position as well. Shift gears down to the bayou. I didn't see this one coming. I really thought that Alabama had, you know, after the bye week, after they had the loss to Tennessee in the bye week, they pretty much uh, on the verge of a shutout at state, you know, Mississippi State scores late. I'm thinking Bama's back. We're going to get vintage damage the rest of the year. You're, they're going to win out. Bryce Young's going to be in the Heisman. All that, and I'm and I'm turning the game on after Georgia, Jeremy, and and it's it's this shootout, and and it's suddenly it's overtime, and my goodness. Uh, LSU scores and wait a minute Brian Kelly's going for two man he's at home you know I thought the home team was supposed to play this out but then I remembered something he said earlier in the week that Bryce Young was the best player in college football I said you know what that rascal's thinking I am not going to give the best player in college football a chance to beat me I'm going to take the ball out of Bryce Young's hand and I'm going to take my chances but before we got to that point what in the world has happened to Alabama and what do we say about what Brian Kelly's done at LSU? Well, let's start with Brian Kelly. Uh, if you go back all the way to the Florida State game to start the year, did you ever think that they would be at a position where they could beat Alabama? Uh, I'll tell you, I'd be the first to say no. Uh, but I think it says a lot about him and his staff and the belief in the program. Um, they continue to improve. You know, they, they improved a little bit. Then Tennessee embarrassed them down there at home. Uh, they bounce back from that, go on the road and beat Florida. They come back. You know, as that game went on Saturday night, uh, when the game started, I wouldn't – I'm not sure that, that that LSU or the fan base thought that they could win the game, but you could see them building the confidence as the game went. Uh, they stayed in the game, got it to the fourth quarter, had a chance to win. Alabama kicks the field goal, gets to overtime. You're right. Alabama scores. Bam. LSU scores first play. He says, this is it. We're either going to win or lose this game right here. Bryce Young's not coming back on the field. Uh, I think it's a gutsy call um, by Brian Kelly. And uh, what a phenomenal, phenomenal win for that program in his first year. Jump starts well, you- the program. Jump starts the program uh, against Alabama because Alabama has been feasting on Louisiana kids for quite some time. You know, Jeremy, when we were talking off air, one of the things you said to me was, this might be the least talented team that Brian Kelly has at LSU. You talk about jump-starting the program. I mean, is it too soon to read the tea leaves, or, or can we now definitively say, yeah, LSU hit a home run with this hire? And, and Because he didn't bring some of those coaches. Some of those coaches stayed up there at South Bend, somewhat reminiscent of Nick Saban getting on the plane to Michigan State, nobody coming with him to LSU. Some of those coaches stayed up there. They thought the grass was greener up there at South Bend. And, he, and you've had to do this yourself building the staff. I mean. Brian Kelly had to hire new people. You talk about what the staff's done. He's still getting to know everybody's, you know, the names and everybody's family and, 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 and how many kids they got. I mean, this is a pretty new staff operating in a different environment. I've got to think uh, th- this is one whale of a coaching job and a, a pretty hostile division in college football. Well, you look at it. I just look at this game in particular. There's no doubt that Alabama has much more talent than, than LSU. Um but the thing that that uh, I start offensively with LSU, you know, they're they're starting two freshman offensive tackles. Uh, not to take anything away from those guys, but Alabama's got really really good edge rushers. Uh, so they were limited in what they could do. And you see the plan that LSU, you know, they had a very simple plan. They found something that was working with the split zone and the slipper play, slipping the tight end out through there. They've got one wide receiver that's kind of a difference maker. Uh, but they just kind of hung in there uh, and found a way. And I thought they'd done an excellent job calling the game on both sides of the ball. No doubt. Your diagnosis somewhere, Nick Saban, probably wishing he could dial you back into the 
coaching box up there. <laughs> Old Miss plays Alabama this week. Alabama plays at Old Miss. A couple coaches and programs you're very familiar with. You know Lane Kiffin really well. You've said on this program a lot of times Lane can score points. What do you anticipate between Alabama and because Old Miss, Jeremy, they're still clinging to some hope. If they can beat Alabama and beat Mississippi State, maybe they backdoor into the. It seems crazy to suggest, but. This is still on the table. So you've been a coach. You've been to Old Miss. You know how Kiffin coaches. You've been in the room with Saban. You have an idea what's going to happen in practice. How do you see Old Miss and Alabama playing out on Saturday? Well, uh, Alabama has the best team uh, far and away. They've got the better team uh, compared to Old Miss. Uh, it's on the road at at Old Miss. Uh, so, and Lane's a great play caller. He has a good feel for. Um, what hurts, you know, the the Alabama system. He's had success in the past. Um, you know, I think it's going to be a gut check uh, for everybody in the Alabama program. I mean, this is an easy time to start pointing fingers and all that. Uh, I don't think that's what will happen. Uh, I think there's a lot of character within the program. I think they'll go back, go back to work. Um, and, you know, with the leadership that they have with with uh, Bryce Young and, and, and Will Anderson, um, I think you'll see Alabama's best foot uh, moving forward to finish out the year, uh, and I think it'll be too much for Ole Miss on Saturday. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I'm still, I still don't believe my own eyes and what happened in Alabama LSU. I'm still trying to wrap my brain around it. Now, LSU, this is interesting. And, you know, odds makers set lines to get balanced money, and I know that's not something that, you know, as a coach you pay a whole lot of close attention to, but – I mean, it's a wait a minute. LSU's a two and a half point favorite over Arkansas that just lost to Liberty. What am I missing here? Because this, you would think, after beating Alabama with a guy like Jaden Daniels, we've just talked up Brian Kelly. What he's done a great job. Arkansas program looks like they're having trouble getting off the mat, uh, losing at home to Liberty and Hugh Freeze. Uh, how do we see LSU at Arkansas? Because the people in Vegas seem to think this is going to be a close game, Jeremy. I think the people in Vegas are right. Uh, you know, this will this will be a huge challenge for for Brian Kelly because uh, I'm going to tell you, I'm sure when the season started, uh, his players probably didn't think they would be in the position they're in right now. The coaches probably didn't think that either. Uh, so, you know, um, one of the toughest coaching jobs is after you've had a, a, a you know a, a really good game. Um, there's a lot of emotion. The fan base is excited, uh, is, is kind of regrouping, resetting and starting over the next week. Uh, and then you look on the other side, you got Arkansas, you got Sam Pittman and his staff that just come off a tough loss that, uh, has not happened. You know, Sam's not had a loss like that since he's been at Arkansas. They've, they've lost, you know, some close games. They've won some close games, especially early on in his tenure there, uh, I'm going to tell you, I like Arkansas in this game. I really do. I think wow. it's going to throw a huge uh, kind of uh, twist in the West because I believe Arkansas is going to beat LSU, uh, which makes the game with Ole Miss and Alabama that much more important. Uh, and then the following week with or the there are two weeks when it's uh, A&M and LSU. So to me, the West is not decided yet. Uh, so. Uh, it'll it'll be that's the, that'll be my game of the week. I'm going to be watching there. I can't wait to watch that game. So it sounds to me like, and and I'll be honest, I I didn't I should have thought this. I should have let my mind go there. But Alabama's not dead yet. If, 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 if there's a scenario, right? I mean, if if Alabama beats Ole Miss, Ole Miss has two conference losses. Alabama has two conference losses. Uh, LSU, however, has the tie break over those schools. They would need to lose to A and M too, right? They, In order, they, right? And 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 hey, I'm going to tell you, both teams, Arkansas and and A and M, are capable of beating LSU. They're at capable. Home. Yeah, absolutely. So this the, the thing in the West is not decided yet. So uh, which is which is going to be unique for the Georgia fan base, uh, you know, because you know, uh, and hey, Georgia's got a. We'll, we'll get to it in a minute, I'm sure, but these road trips to Mississippi state and, and Kentucky, uh, there's still a lot of football left to play there, but who's the opponent going to be in Atlanta? I, I'm, I'm not sure that that won't be decided for a few more weeks. Well, something tells me Kirby's got enough staff members over here, Jeremy, to have plenty of guys watching each game every week, just in case. 
because he said he had somebody. He said he had a staff member that was watching Tennessee, and I'm thinking, you didn't have one, Coach. You probably had about 10 breaking that film down and looking at it from every possible angle and prism because that Georgia team, that was to me, as impressive as the Oregon game was, I thought the Tennessee game was even more impressive, and I'll tell you why. Because as much as I like Dan Lanning, and, and I think he's great, and Dan Lanning, don't take that Auburn job, man. Don't go to that graveyard. You don't want to step foot there. That is not going to be a good job for anybody. Dan Lanning needs to sit back, get in a national title game, and position himself for Alabama. I said that. Yeah, I did. Dan Lanning doesn't need to take But in that first game, Dan Lanning was still learning everybody's first name. He did not know his talent. He did not know his personnel. There's only so much you can get done. And, and honestly, Jeremy, if people look closely, and I sent Dan a little note after the game because coaches are people, too. They're human, too. I know you all don't have time to read every text message, but do you realize Oregon didn't have a three and out until the fourth quarter of that game? Do you realize Oregon didn't give up a quarterback sack in that football game? Do you realize that Oregon outrushed Georgia in that football game? There was a lot of nuances and efficiency and great coaching that led to 49-3. to Those teams were not that far apart. Now, this last game was more impressive because nobody had stopped Tennessee. I guess Narduzzi did for a half in the second half. They didn't score a touchdown. But this team was on a roll. They found something. They found a loophole in the rule in, in the in the rules to manipulate this up tempo. They had a quarterback, and, and I'll tell you, I left with more respect for Hendon Hooker in defeat than I did going in because that guy was tough. I mean, they rang his bell. They hit him in the open field. And when I saw him do those interviews, this guy's real thin. They're going to break this guy in half. Uh-uh. I don't know what he's made out of, but he is one tough cat. And I think this was an even better coaching job. Not to burst the tip, not to burst the Georgia coach's bubble, but you told us two weeks ago, Kirby's going to have these guys ready for Florida and for Tennessee. It's the next two games. Yeah, you know, you look at you look at Mississippi State, and um, I'm sure there, there's probably not a player, maybe Stetson Bennett, or I don't know anybody. When's the last time Georgia played in Starkville? You know as well as I do when you go to Starkville, Mississippi. Uh, it's not exactly the SEC feel in the town. A little small town, um, and all of a sudden you get in the stadium – uh, maybe not the pageantry at some of the other places, but man, the fan base comes alive. They get those cowbells going, uh, and it can be a tough place to play. I said, I'm trying to look up and see the last time was when they played in Starkville. And you're right, as they say, you know, it's not the end of the earth, but you can see the end of the earth from there. And it is going to be very different from anything they've seen. They've never been in an environment like this. And it's also their first game under the lights this year. You know, I asked Keely Ringo uh, today, and you could probably answer this better. It's got to be a little bit different. You know, I know just from my, my slow pitch softball days, you know, seems a little different finding that fly ball in the sky under the lights than it does in the daytime. And it just it's subtleties like that that make me wonder if that's a little bit of an edge for state, especially with them coming off a game, you know, where they just beat Auburn in overtime. That's a momentum game. There's a lot of excitement. You know, I wouldn't put it in the big game category like we were talking about LSU and Alabama, but that was a real shot of confidence that they needed after losing decisively. So 2010 uh, is the last time that Georgia played there, Jeremy, a 24-12 to win. They lost 23-10 to back in 2005. And before that, they hadn't played there since 1996. Uh, and, and I believe they lost 1938. I think that's the year the goalposts. I want to say that might be the year the goalposts came down when State beat uh, Alabama. Uh, my, but yeah, it was. It was Coach Stallings' final year. I believe you might have been there. Yeah, in no, fact, that yeah. yeah, I believe you were there that night as a player for Alabama when the goalposts come down in Starkville. So uh, let me ask you about Mike Leach. You know, I, I know that that every play caller, uh, every offensive coach is a little bit different. I, I'm sure at some point you were across the field from Mike Leach. What makes Mike Leach, other than his eccentric ways off the field, is there anything that made him unique or or, uh, you know, revered uh, as an offensive play caller and an offensive coach? You know, I, he's he's one of the few guys out there that I've not coached against. Uh, I think he might have been on the Kentucky staff in 1997 when I was a student assistant uh, at Alabama, and they beat us. They, they, they beat Alabama up there, Coach Dubose's first year. 
Goalpost, uh, goalpost came down that night too. Yeah, but but one of the things he's he's obviously he's known for spreading you out, throwing the football, taking chances. Um, you know, I I feel like that he's going to have a tough time uh, doing that against Georgia. Uh, Georgia, I mean, first of all, he's got to get committed to running the ball. Uh, if you go back and look at the Alabama game, Alabama played with a four-one box the entire game. So there's five linemen to block those four those five guys in the box plus a runner. And they never really stayed after the run game, even though they were gaining about five yards of carry. Um, you know, to me, I think for them to win this game, uh, they're going to have to they're going to have to be able to run the football. I really believe that. Uh, you know, I, I think you'll probably see this is one of the kind of the things that are catching on within the league since Mike has joined. Is a lot of people are eight dropping. They're only rushing three guys. They're eight dropping to take away these quick patterns. Uh, it's not really a vertical passing game. Uh, it, it, it's it's get the ball out of your hands, out on the perimeter. A lot of the screens are an extension of the run game. So um, sometimes when you uh, bring a lot of pressure against uh, Coach Leach, it's probably not good for you uh, because he's not going to block you anyhow. He's just getting the ball out of his hands. So I would see in this game, I'd probably see Georgia playing with a lot of odd front with a lot of eight-man uh, drops and – and trying to get the quarterback to scramble, get him off the spot, and have somebody spy him, come out of there, and, and come get him. Yeah, and Georgia's deep in the secondary, Jeremy. They got some guys that can cover. They got some guys that can play. Kirby and Will have done an unbelievable job developing these guys this season. And I know the talent means a lot, but so does the player development. So does the preparation. And and that's where Kirby Smart has really excelled with his program and his assistant coaches and, and getting everybody on the same page. It's so key i want to look now at the college football playoff picture because you said something earlier about tennessee making it and i've made this point in tennessee's argument that they could make it they lost 27 to 13 i don't care you know how dominant georgia looked at the end of the day those college football playoff selection people are going to look and they're going to see a final score they weren't there at the stadium they didn't feel it they don't know that georgia could have scored another three touchdowns if they wouldn't have stopped passing or if they're running, they're going to see 27 to 13. Now we're going to flash back something near and dear to your heart, dear Coach Pruitt. You lost 26 to 14 to Auburn in the last regular season game. So before we get too far, to, did you think it was over then? Did you think there was any way that Alabama uh, and your Alabama team that you were the defensive coordinator for was going to make the college football playoff and is it at large? Because I believe, uh, I think that was the first, wasn't that the first at large team? To, to make it that didn't win a conference championship game? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, Maybe I'm Notre not Dame. sure, but, but, but that was the Auburn team that, that, that beat Georgia late in the year and beat Alabama late in the year, two of the better teams uh, in the country, ended up playing for the national championship. And then, obviously, Georgia got them in the rematch uh, in the SEC championship game and dominated the game. I think when you look to college football playoffs, if I'm sitting here at Tennessee, I'm going to be rooting for Alabama. I'm going to be rooting for Alabama to beat Ole Miss uh, to finish out the season the right way. I'm going to root for LSU uh, to finish out the season the right way because if they finish out the season the right way and they they both went out, uh, I don't see how Tennessee doesn't get in. You know, when you talk about beating a um, you know a ten and two Alabama, uh, a, a ten and two LSU on the road, uh, beat Pittsburgh at Pitt. You know, I think that would that would get Tennessee in for sure. Now, if Alabama was to slip to Ole Miss, if 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 LSU was to slip to Arkansas or even to Texas A&M down the stretch, it makes those wins not near as impressive as they once were. Uh, so, a team like Oregon, uh, if they keep they keep uh, winning out there and winning impressively like they like they're doing. Uh, uh, we, I, I mean, call it like it is, Mike. I'm sure when you – like, we're all in the SEC, right? So that's the world we know. We think we have the best football in the country. Uh, you know, there's there's three-quarters of the country out there that really would like to see somebody besides the SEC win, you know? So I, they're just waiting to put somebody else in there, you know? No, there's no doubt about it. Okay, well, here's the scenario. So we're, here's where we break it down, and this is where I call the the nut-cutting time, right? So we know that the SEC champion is going to get in. We're For this likely scenario, we're going to go chalk. Georgia's in. Georgia, whether they whether they lose one of the next two games or not, and Tennessee needs to be hoping that it's an undefeated Georgia, by the way, in the same line of logic that they want LSU and, and Alabama to win out. So that gives you Georgia. 
Now, I think we can say that, that Michigan and Ohio State more than likely will be undefeated when they meet, and I think that whoever wins that game will beat the West Division team. The West Division in the Big Ten is terrible. It's awful. There is nobody in the West that I think can stay on the field with Michigan-Ohio State. So let's put UM slash OSU as a number two team in the playoff. Now, here's where I stretch it a little bit, and, and I might get some pushback. The Pac-12 has gone so doggone long without having a team in the playoff, I think the committee is going to be bent on trying to get them in there if they can make an argument. There are currently three one-loss Pac-12 teams. USC with a Heisman Trophy contender. Don't underestimate that. UCLA, sexy coach, Chip Kelly. Everybody knows that name. That's his storyline. And Dan Lanning and the Oregon Ducks. And, and let's face it, people like the uniforms and they like the Nike money. If one of those Pac-12 teams wins the Pac-12 championship, and it's one loss, Jeremy, they're going to take that team over Tennessee. They're going to take a conference champion from the Pac-12 out of those three over a one-loss Tennessee. So that's three. So I'm going to pencil in my Pac-12 one-loss team. Now, TCU's undefeated. I'm going to count them out. I'm going to throw them to the side. I don't believe they're going to finish the regular season. I think they're going to lose one of these next couple games, if not the Big 12. So forget the Big 12. They're out of it. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Let's just say, and I had somebody tell me they didn't think Clemson would win out. But if Clemson wins out and wins the ACC championship game, we're going to be talking about measuring a one-loss Clemson versus a one-loss Tennessee. And furthermore, the Michigan-Ohio State loser is also going to be in this beauty contest. So you're going to have a one-loss UM OSU. And there's your and there and there's the field right there. You got to pick one. A one-loss Clemson that has just won the ACC championship game over North Carolina. A one-loss Michigan Ohio State that didn't play in the Big Ten title game. So it's going to be very important. Uh, obviously, the final score is it going to be close? Is it going to be compelling enough that they would want to see two Big Ten teams? If it's a blowout, not cancel that form, cancel that out. But if it's a close game. And then you got Tennessee, and this is where it's important how Tennessee finishes the season. They have to continue to win impressively, Coach, and like you said, get some help. The, the Alabama resume needs to look good. The LSU resume needs to look good. The Georgia, and then you go, oh, my gosh, look at all these, these teams. What are your thoughts as we finish up today's program? On the four-team playoff, uh, do you like it? And then what are your thoughts about the expansion to 12 teams, along with a nine-game SEC schedule. Because that's coming when that when when the 12-team playoff comes, we're going to see nine-game schedule. You've been there as a player in the SEC. You've been there as an assistant, as a head coach. Do you like the nine-game schedule? Do you like the 12-team playoff? Well, I'm going to start with this, what you were talking about, who's getting into the playoffs. If, <laughs> if Michigan beats Ohio State at Ohio State, Ohio State's out. They're done, in my opinion. You lose a home, a home game. game. You lose a home game. Uh, they're done. Uh, to me, Clemson. I, I don't think Clemson is near as good as Tennessee. Uh, I think if you look at their body of work, I don't care if they win the ACC championship. You put them in the SEC, they're probably a four-loss team. Uh, that's my opinion uh, for this year. I mean, I just, I just believe that. I, I, I'm not, are they better than Alabama? No. Are they better in Tennessee? No. Are they better in Georgia? No. All right, so that puts them four there. Uh, you know how it is when you start playing that third game on the road in this league. It don't matter who it is, you know. So, um, but now to the I, I do like the fourteen playoff. I do. It's it's kind of worked itself out over the over the uh, the years, um, you know. And I'm probably a little biased because I've been fortunate enough to be at the places that probably uh, get the edge, kind of got the bump, you know, like you just brought up losing to Auburn. Uh, at Auburn, and then we end up winning a national championship. So, uh, to me, if you expand the playoffs, I believe you can't go past can't go past uh, fifteen games in a season in college football. That's too much. It's already dragging in to starting to the next the 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 winter or spring semester. Uh, guys are trying to make decisions: are they coming back? Are they are they declaring for the draft? Uh, which is I mean, some of the most important decisions they'll ever make. Now you got the portal, okay? So you got kids, are they going to stay on a team? Are they going to move to another team? It's just, there's a whole lot of moving parts here. And I think uh, ever who's in charge of this, 
has really got to think it through. And the decision needs to be based off what's best for the student athlete, uh, in my opinion, because without them, we wouldn't have college football. So we need to make decisions based on what's best for them and helping them uh, have the best four or five year experience that they can possibly have. Yeah, no doubt about it. So I guess I would ask you then to finish up nine game conference schedule. Looks like it's coming. looks like they're trying to value the contract more. They renegotiate, renegotiate with ESPN. How will that change things? I think we've heard Nick Saban say before, I think he would be in favor of that. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, the, the guys that have coached in the NFL, like coach Saban, uh, you got 32 teams, right? I mean, he, he, I can remember back 2007, eight, nine, early on in our, all of our tenure at, at Alabama, him talking about a super conference, you know, because he felt like that, um, you know, the top 32 teams or whatever they are, 24, 40, whatever it is in, in college football, uh, they operate a little bit different than the bottom 44 or 34. And it's true. You know, it's true. So, uh, but our rules in the NCAA are for everybody, you know, and, and it's, it's not really kind of the same, you know, we're, we all kind of have the same mission, right? But when you look at the money, the, the TV revenue, um, the fan bases, it, it is a little bit different. Yeah, no doubt about it, Coach. Well, I'll tell you what, it's another exciting week of SEC football on tap. Uh, Kirby Smart, Georgia, trying to stay focused in on Mississippi State. His quote after the game, I thought he hit it. Humility is one week away. I think Kirby knows that there's going to be a very hostile crowd. I think the, the early start to the game in terms of getting off to a fast start, very important. One thing Kirby said as part of the formula for beating Tennessee, you touched on it. He said Tennessee goes for the knockout early. And I think you talked about the importance of playing from ahead. That was another important element to that football game was that the Georgia offense was never taken out of their game plan. There was never any external pressure. All the pressure was on Tennessee. And certainly uh, the Sanford Stadium crowd escalated that. The decibel meter going up to 136 at times, according to the uh, Georgia scoreboard. Coach Pruitt, thank you so much for joining us. Always have a lot of fun uh, talking with you. I think it's always insightful. Um, that Arkansas LSU pick, something tells me it's going to be a headline somewhere. Uh, but but the truth of the matter is, uh, there's a reason that's a two and a half point spread. I mean, you know, Connor Riley and I were talking about that today. I said, you think that's a little weird? I mean, Arkansas losing a, a game to, and then they're going to have to, they're only down a two and a half point favorite at home at Razorback. But Razorback Stadium can get rowdy. And to your point, uh, you know, this is Brian Kelly's year one. And he doesn't have the depth of talent yet um, that, that championship programs do. I just think he's done a whale of a job. So for Coach Pruitt, this is Mike Griffith. I want to thank everybody for joining us on our Ingles on the Beat show tonight. Don't forget Jeff Santel on Wednesday night. On Friday night, it's Go With the Flow where we make our picks. And then Sunday, it's Connor and Coverage. Everybody have a great week.